Thanks for tuning in, guys. You're listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg Driver. I'm joined by Rahul Johnny and Leon Everett. Let's go! Welcome to episode number 58 of Ace Comicals, and today I am joined by both of my co-hosts. I have Leon. Hey, hey. And Rahul. Hey, guys. So, first things first, I think we should introduce the multi-million, squillion, billion dollar movie that is in the room that is Captain Marvel, which all three of us have been to see. I've been twice. I don't know about you guys. Did you guys manage to catch it a second time yet? No, not yet. But I want to check it out again uh, this week. Totally worth yeah. the second watch. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see it a second time. I saw, I saw it in the first week. Um, it, it really good seeing it on like in the first few days of release because you know, like like with every Marvel film, there's a big buzz and like the audience tends to be pretty good early on because everyone's sort of on the same excitement level. But yeah, I'd like to see it a second time too. I haven't haven't had the opportunity yet. Yeah, the first time I went on a Wednesday night, um, the Wednesday after release, and it was kind of dead. So that was really good because I was like alone. I, I went on my own. So it was like solo cinema trip. And I think there was like 12 other people in there. So, okay. yeah. And, and they were all like respectful people, that, <laughs> like older people with jobs and stuff. So that was cool. Yeah, you know? I was bracing myself for another Greg tale of cinema woe, but I, I guess, I guess not. No, That's nice. no, they were all, they were all people that followed the damn cinema rules. Like, what the hell and then the second time i went to see it i took sophie on saturday and um we thought we were going to be going into a standard showing but it turned out the time we wanted was director's lounge at the showcase in leicester right right. so we ended up in a director's lounge showing and we weren't sorry about that because we know nice we know that like you know kids don't spring for (laughs) director's lounge tickets (laughs) It you've got was the okay. big comfy seats and you got the yeah. little table for your drink. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It was nice, yeah. So both times I had I had a, a nice chill cinema experience. So what about Generalissimo Rahul? Did he have to execute anyone? <laughs> well I, I saw <laughs> I saw it widely on a mov um yeah. that first time. And we were being flanked by crinklers. So there was oh, like no. a guy on I was I was in the middle of these two, so luckily I was like buffered by my mates. But to Marv's left there was a guy who was like just canoodling with his girlfriend and eating a scotch egg. And on Leon's <laughs> right there was a guy who just kept opening packet after packet of crisps. At the digging same time wait, his bag. wait, at the same time, making out and eating a scotch egg at the same time. Two different dudes, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Was the was the scotch egg like pressed between their faces? <laughs> Like, <laughs> both I, I mean, simultaneously taking crap. bites out of it or what like... I, I, honestly i was it's it's a testament to the quality of the film that i wasn't super distracted by those people and again <laughs> marv was in the way of you know the the scotch egg couple and myself but like the film was engaging enough that i wasn't really paying attention to the in- annoying people around me so i can't yeah, think of anything something. anything less romantic than a scotch egg in a marvel movie <laughs> <laughs> I mean, me neither. I don't know what their deal was, and they they left straight away and um, left behind a wake of like popcorn, you know, behind them as they I don't got think up. I so... want to know what their deal was. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but okay, yeah. So um, I trust all three of us enjoyed it because I certainly did. Yeah, Maybe had a good time. It, yeah. um, like standard middle of the road Marvel fair, I think would be yeah. my, my summary. Yeah. 
See, I would I would say that I would go with um, mid tier Marvel for this definitely. It, it's mid tier Marvel, but it you know there's some really cool stuff going on in there. Um, it's a really good setup for Endgame. Um, good introduction for a character actually. I quite like that, and it's in fitting with the rest of the MCU in the way that they have made Carol Danvers. Um, which I'll get into a little bit more in a moment because I'm going to have to give you guys a timestamp and say that we're going to be talking a little bit of spoilers. So from here on out, uh, we are going to be talking more about the movie and possibly dropping some spoilers. Um, so if you don't want to hear that, tune back in at the timestamp that I'm going to leave on the show notes. And that's when we will start talking about comics. So, like, what what was your kind of impression of the movie? How did you feel they handled the character of Carol Danvers kind of thing, Ray? So, I, as much as I love, like, the Ms. Marvel brand, like, I've spoken about that a lot in the past, I don't really know that much about um, the precursor Ms. Marvel or Captain Marvel or Carol Danvers in general. And we did talk about the Carol Danvers comic, which was basically in the run-up to this movie, um... They had a a run of comics, which I didn't actually finish the run, but explaining her history. Mm. But aside from that, I didn't really know much about her. So this was, I think, a good introduction to a a bunch of new elements to the MCU. So namely, um, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel herself, but also the the Kree and the Skrulls, which Mm. to me always sounded very similar to each other just because they have Ks in their name. Um, So I was kind of conflating the two up until this movie. Um, But like from what I gather... I really like what they did with the scrolls because generally they're meant to be like a cannon fodder sort of acceptable target villain in the comics. And I like that they did a bit of a flipperoo oh. in, in this movie. Yeah. So Nothing... like overall, I, I really, I really did mm. like it as an introduction, but I think, and this is something we've all talked about off air that it's a shame that um, Captain Marvel and even some of the other more recent uh, Marvel films introduce new characters but don't give them enough time to like breathe and become themselves before being thrown into uh, you know the big cataclysm um Avengers movies and like you know yeah. for the upcoming infinite what's the new one uh Endgame. Endgame yeah because that's that's what this is this is Captain Marvel cutting a promo for how she's going to kick Thanos's ass that's that's what this is <laughs> um and you're right in saying that she probably could have done like it's like we, we I think we said did we say before that Black Panther could have done with a second Black Panther movie before being chucked into everything else into the yeah. smoothie as it were. It was yeah, it's a general point because I think that um, some of these characters of say like Iron Man, Cap, and Thor have all had a trilogy of movies and have been in other movies as well as well as the Avengers movies, whereas like. Um, spider-man uh black panther uh and carol uh and others like dr strange have only had like one movie be- before being thrown into this big yeah. end of uh end of phase three uh like big uh crossover battle so mm. one of my short uh feelings that uh, that's a shortcoming of this model is that you get to have you get to see these characters do like a maiden voyage and then immediately, it it it, it feels uh, incongruous. Uh, incongruous how like they're dealing with like 
relatively small potato stuff as they like form and become their own thing and then they're thrust into this big intergalactic it's the end of time it's the end of the universe big storyline that makes me think like when they go back to sequel uh it's going to be a bit weird i mean hmm. i don't know it, it, it i think it's it's one of my least favorite aspects of the mcu which itself is just a side effect of them doing this thing that's never been done before and uh, what they do is quite remarkable, but it, it does leave a bit of a, a sour feeling in my mouth. But um, yeah, overall, um, I think the movie does a good job of introducing the character um, and it, and even doing some heavy lifting that it has to do with introducing the scrolls. And we, we saw a bit of the Kree uh, with Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, but yeah. this does a better job or it, it does uh, a good job of giving us a bit more uh, insight yeah. into the conflict the war um and mm. the different tensions b- uh, between them the thing with the kree and the, the scroll it, it's it's less black and white in the comics than it is in these movies and the thing in this the way they dealt with the scroll, and I can talk, I can say it because we're, we're doing a little bit of spoilers. So the scroll face turn towards the end of this film and everything else. It's like, I, I mean, I like what they did with the scroll, but at the same time, I would have liked them to have had a more nuanced approach to that instead of just saying these bad, these good. Because that's, that's not how it is at all. Like, the I, scroll I think, res- yeah. Yeah, mm. I was just to say, like, I think it is a bit more nuanced than that because, um, there, there are lines where, like towards the end, where uh, Talos, I believe, who's uh, Ben Mendelsohn's yeah. um, yeah. main um, scroll, he he uh, ad- admits that like he's got blood on his hands, type thing. Like war is a dirty is a dirty yeah. game that uh, tarnishes everyone involved. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, I don't think it's as black and white, but it is a, it is quite an interesting turn yeah. to. Because for years people have been um, speculating that Phase Four or whatever would be about um, the uh, scrolls coming and in, yeah, yeah, secret invasion, yeah. Yeah. But like, I do like how that's still on the table in a way. Mm. But uh, they've they've done a, something quite interesting by flipping the uh, the the allegiances um, of them and creating a more nuanced uh, sort of refugee uh, grey muddy war story instead of it yeah. being like um, all all good heroes all good uh, yeah. uh, enemies so I, I think that's quite um, a cool wrinkle it is cool but what I got out of it was like I mean you, you probably saw something I didn't there but what I got out of it was that the squirrel were being hunted to extinction by the Kree and there was only so many of them left which and they're looking for a new world, new home world, which, mm. yeah, but also, you know, like, so what are the, I mean, how, how are they going to come back from that? If there's only like that a thousand or so of them left, like, what are they going to, you know? That's what screenwriters jobs are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, it bothers me. It keeps me awake at night. <laughs> I feel like it's a similar problem of scale that Marvel have always yeah. had, like the same with the the end of um like thor 3 yeah. which i guess i'm going to spoil right now but like it so if you haven't seen thor 3 um ragnarok uh tune out now for like a couple of minutes but why like, have spoilers of captain marvel if you've not watched thor ragnarok guys? exactly yeah <laughs> um but yeah like how it ends with the destruction of um whatever 
Asgard, thank you. Um, and like you have all the refugees from Asgard all on one, all in one ship, and then for uh, in Avengers um, Infinity War, spoilers for Infinity War, but like half like they're they're basically decimated as well, and like yeah. knowing they haven't or we haven't seen what foresight the writers have or, or like if they understand the scale of like repopulating or whatever whatever i tend not to think about it i feel like it's it's not worth getting too pent up about um but yeah i see your point with that like what is mm. it what what is the what where is it leading to to bring in these characters yeah. and then give them so few people to play with just just bring them in and then just all of a sudden like you know like just just take them away again and especially on such an intergalactic yeah. scale as well like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't compute it feels like and like that's another thing i feel with marvel in general like with the kree i believe um like i it took me a while to realize that they were the same group of peoples that we saw in guardians of the galaxy is well, that right or am i make yeah you're right it's ronan ronan the accuser yeah it's the same but it's also the same like quote-unquote benevolent group that were in guardians of the galaxy the ones who were trying to save their planet is that right or am i mixing stuff up see this is the kind of thing that i find really confusing with the marvel films where they i don't even think you're expected to follow every single movie i think it's just it wasn't clear in this film where the connections lied with the previous yeah. films i just wasn't i don't feel like that was communicated clearly which didn't really affect my enjoyment of the film yeah. it just means that like where it's going after this and after endgame i don't feel like it's set up that very effectively yeah I, the, I mean i i can't see where it will this is my problem with what they've done with the scroll you see saying that the scroll are actually you know they're not bad guys and there's nothing like where are they going to go after endgame if not you know with the rest of this with how are they going to build on that well, they like, could easily do just another flipperoo like they did with the the scrolls, where we got to see a huge benevolent faction of the Kree, and now we see a like a fascist murderous collection of the Kree, and then we'll see like another facet to them because they're such a huge population. And I, I, with unless you guys have got another point to make on this, I feel like we're focusing too much on like the broader structure of the MCU. But like, what did you guys think of Carol as a character? Because I really enjoyed. Oh yeah. Her. And um, God, I was going to say Alison Brie. Who am I? Who am Brie I? Brie Larson. Of? Brie Larson. Thank you. <laughs> um, and her portrayal of Carol Danvers. What did you yeah. guys think? She was really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought she was great. But then, like, I am a, a Brie Larson stand from way back. So, mm. like, I've been looking forward to her for years uh, in this role. And I think she, I think she even elevates uh, weaker parts of the script. And I think she's able to embody a character to, that could easily become like um some of the worst examples of like superman or mm. some of the worst examples of a captain america type where they're um super powerful um super good uh so like with that sometimes you sort of sand down rough edges and they're not interesting enough but i think that uh, the script and her performance um are work in tandem to yeah create this like really cool version of of this character and yeah. i i think that um mm. every time she's on screen she's um i think the the movie moves uh, a quite fun pace because that's, um yeah that's yeah that's, sorry carry on i was gonna i was gonna make a point about what you were saying about rough edges but i'll let you finish and then i'll do it <laughs> well yeah, i was just gonna say because like yeah. um the 
because a lot of this does rest on her and it's an amnesiac story, you can it, it you can fall into um, a trap of a character having no character because they don't know who they are. But I do like that even though she doesn't know her past, she's still quite uh, she's still good. And the whole thing of hers, she's she's like good at what she does, uh, even before she had the powers. So I do like that. That's an innate thing where um, she's just like she's a soldier. She gets to business. So she lands on Earth and she's like, well, this is a new planet. Cool. Let me find out what the deal is with this stuff. And then just keeps moving forward. And I think I think like it's quite fun for that. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, to what you were saying about the rough edges in the Superman thing, um, like that's what I I liked about this portrayal of Carol Danvers. Like it retains that Marvel humanity that you get in the pages of Marvel comics. Mm. Whereas sometimes um, DC characters, when you read a DC book, can seem like lofty gods. Yeah, like infallible. Um, Superman especially, almost infallible sometimes, the ultimate force of good or whatever. It would be easy for them to fall into a into this trap with a character like Captain Marvel because of, of how powerful she is and everything else. But I like that they've they've kept they've kept the humanity from the pages of the Marvel comics and been able to put that into the movie in such an intro in, in, and keep it that way, which is really yeah. nice. Yeah. And then they've they've done like an even uh, smarter thing with that where um, like there's, there's a trouble when you're making a, move, a movie like this because it has to do so many things and it's like the first uh, solo uh, like female uh, led movie that they've done and like there's a lot sort of uh, by proxy weighing on the, on the shoulders of a movie like this and I like that they managed to uh, hit all their goals and targets of making like a fun enjoyable like comic book movie, but also um, work in a lot of uh, what it appears to be like uh, picking up elements of like the general like experience of like being a woman. And they managed to fit that movie, uh, fit that stuff into the movie in a way that doesn't really beat you over the head, but instead mm. it just feels like really good character moments mm. um, and, and uh, stuff like that. I, I I quite enjoyed and like even going to the sort of sort of main theme of um, like uh, emotionality and and, and how uh, that's always put as a weakness on on people, especially uh, like women characters. And it's like uh, it's the whole gaslight thing of like you being emotional. Da, da, da. And, and in in this, actually, being emotional is is like the strength of her power. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's quite it's quite a cool. Um, Thing to see done so well yeah. i do like that they because this is the kind of film where it has every opportunity to be too reactionary to like all the meta stuff like the conversation all the negative conversation that was um around on the internet in the lead up to this movie and it could easily have done a lot of like i don't know what i would call fuck you moments to the audience who's already like primed themselves not to like this movie because of who it represents or who's in it or you know what it's what it's about and i like that it it did it in slightly more like subtle ways it like you were saying it wasn't preachy um but it just it used those character moments so it used her i don't know her femininity and like the fact that i like the moment where like in the run-up to the, before the movie a lot of people were saying how um how 
Brie Larson doesn't smile, which is like a bullshit reason to not like a not like a film or a character. And in the film, they put one moment where some dude tells her, "Why don't you smile? You look nicer." And she steals his motorbike, which I thought was epic. And then later on, we find out like that's not her character at all. She just doesn't she doesn't reserve her like she doesn't have to make herself anything for anybody except for herself. And we see her later like having a really good time with um, Samuel L. Jackson's character. And like that natural humor and happiness that comes from her when she's surrounded by people who she gets along with, like it's it's not performative. And I really liked that where it, it could easily have been really heavy handed, but it just made it part of her character. She only has time for the people she cares about. And I thought I thought that was great. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite things about the way that they adapted Carol Danvers from the pages was the fact that they changed the way like this is what I was talking about earlier when I said in keeping with the rest of the end the mcu um they changed the way in which she received her powers because in the comics um the original carol Danvers was caught in an explosion with marvell and her dna was fused with marvell's and that's how she gained her powers because the kree were just like that but <laughs> um in this her powers actually come from the tesseract mm. from the space stone which is kind of cool because that's in keeping with this theme that we've got going on at the moment where um, she's almost similar to um, Scarlet Witch, for example, in the way that she gained her powers from the Soul Stone. Mm, Uh, Not the Soul Stone, sorry, the the Mind Stone, isn't it? I know, the one in the staff, whatever it was. Yeah, because the Soul Stone is is on a planet being guarded by um, emo cloak-wearing Red Skull, so... Yeah, it's, I think it's the Mind Stone, yeah. <laughs> it's the Mind Stone. But yeah, I I thought that was kind of cool in how they adapted that to sort of fit in with the rest of the MCU. And, and Yeah. I, sorry, I was going to cut in to say I really like how the MCU is doing like this very Dickensian thing where everything is linked back to everything. Yeah. And like and it's not it it, it doesn't it doesn't feel bloated yet. Like I like the fact that her powers come from the Tesseract, which was on earth in the nineties, which was being looked after by um, Fury and like all of this stuff where it hey, falls hey, in hey, on its... Hey, it's being guarded by a flurkin. <laughs> all right, fine. <laughs> a flurkin, sure. <laughs> I've got two uh, flurkins which... and they would be, they would be very, very annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> Scene stealing flurkin as well. I, I do love yeah, like, yeah. that, th- those kind of humorous elements to this, this plot. Like I really, yeah. Like, it's not taking itself too seriously, which it could so easily have done. And yeah. I don't know. To go back to the the way that she got her powers, I thought that moment was beautifully shot. Like, I love the way that it, like, drops into slow-mo and you see the... Because it, it basically stems from Marvel's ship being powered by the Tesseract um, in some manner, in some way or form, yeah. uses the Tesseract as a power source. And then she, in a moment of self-sacrifice and, like... Uh, not yeah, self-sacrifice. She chooses to explode the ship that Marvel created, and like the powers from that, which sort of inexplicably it doesn't explain why she didn't just get blown up, but like she absorbs the power from this, you know, this sci-fi engine, and you see like the smoke and the 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 like the blue from the energy like soak into her in slow mo. I thought that was yeah, really cool. That was awesome. And we that that's we get that as a. I, if I'm not misremembering this, it happens really early on. Like it's one of the first scenes we see that, but like out of context. And then we come back to it yeah. towards the end of the film. I, I thought that was a nice, what nice I, full circle. 
what I like about this film is that it's an origin movie, but it doesn't actually feel like I'm being shown yet another origin movie. It, it doesn't feel... I mean, yes, it's an origin movie, and yes, we are being explained to about Captain Marvel and everything else, but it doesn't feel that way it, when you're watching it. It's not like you were seeing Spider-Man's origin yet again, or you are seeing Batman's yeah, origin I, yet again. And I think that's down to how they present it. By presenting it uh, in a non-linear fashion, how they do in this film, uh, yeah. where it's, it's uh, heavily tied to the theme of memory, yeah. I think that is a way more interesting way to do it than how you normally get it, where we sort of see things, not in real time, but we see them linearly. Like, yeah. event happens, um person is changed in some way and then they uh, have to figure out um their like abilities while at the same time a, a threat arises and they sort of have to find out uh who they are and what their powers are and overcome the threat mm. uh, and and this it flips it in a way because um she's powerful all along and it's more about uh, f- uh finding out about herself and um being able to uh like unleash her power type thing instead of having to uh like gain it type thing yeah yeah i love that i love that it's not a like you said it's not a case of her discovering her strength it's about her discovering that she's been hemmed in which comes back to that theme of gaslighting and like how she's been told all along that these powers were given to her but if any in fact they were being limited by outside forces and she had to learn to break that chain i thought that was that's a really cool way to do it Mm. um and like Although, this, uh, something we talked about after the film, Leon. Like I, I don't know if you wanted to make this point. I might be stealing this from you, but um, in the trailer, one of the things we all said we liked was the the scenes of her like standing up as she goes from a child to a teenager to like um, young adult to her current state. Where like the part one of the themes of the movie is she she's human, so she knows to just to stand up. Like she keeps getting back up when she's knocked down. And how we loved that progression in the trailer and we were expecting it to be, I don't know, cut together worse or like in separate distinct scenes in the movie. But they do the same thing in the movie. But if anything, it's better. Like, I don't know what you uh, what your thoughts were on that particular moment. Yeah. uh, uh, Yeah. It's just sort of like that, to be honest. I I do. What I was expecting is it to feel like played out by the time we saw it in in the film. And what I think the film did really well is um because we get snippets of those elements uh before of like the fall and i think the moment where it builds and you do have that bit that we have seen in the trailers it just works so much better in the movie somehow and i think that while it could have been like a super sentimental or sappy moment in the actual film it works so well and um like it you get such a a rush um as this it's not it's not even just a case of like uh, like, because the human finding out you're human is kind of a, like a weakness, and with humanity uh, actually being the strength uh, is like a really uh, uh, a cool thing. And, and like, just the way like the 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 match on like motion and action and uh, the way everything ties together, the music during that part, I think it it works really well to get that that general theme over. You've uh, you've brought me on to my next. Um point actually just to kind of like round this off a little bit before we move on to comics and that is the soundtrack so i was just going to mention that me and leon were having this discussion actually previously before um we were recording that the we like kind of vibing off the soundtrack for this (laughs) (laughs) Mm. um bit of garbage bit of no doubt they were the highlights for me 
Um, I don't know about you guys. Uh, Ray, any highlights soundtrack wise? Yeah, I mean, I liked I liked all of the soundtrack. I, this is going to come into a point I wanted to make about just the the general nostalgia of this film compared mm. to another MCU nostalgia fest like Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't feel like the music moments worked for me quite as well, but I think they were doing something very different in this film yeah. than, say, James Gunn was doing with Guardians of the Galaxy, where, like, I felt like the movie... Sorry, the music in Captain Marvel was sort of incidental. It felt like they were just picking songs from the mm. 90s that were cool. And, yeah, the soundtrack was great. I'm not saying it wasn't cool. I liked some of the some of the choices, even some of the choices that people don't seem to like. So, like... Um, like just a girl was playing at some point in one of the final fight scenes. And I thought that was a bit on the well, nose, was, but like, that was great. I, yeah. Some people have said they didn't like it cause it was too on the nose, but I, I didn't mind oh, it. It just felt, yeah. the, the, I think my thing was that none of it really felt very, um, like diegetic the way it was in guys in the galaxy, because like music was an integral part of yeah. that character's arc. And like the music itself had, a yeah. place because he was holding on to like his past yeah. and his tape and his tape player and everything and this was more just like let's pick some cool hits from the 90s um i think it just did a very different thing and it didn't yeah it it, it didn't have that same emotional twang it, as guardians did for me but because yeah. none of them are really tied to theme yeah exactly mm. yeah it wasn't as natural and as knitted in as it was with guardians of the galaxy well like my my touchstone when that that fight scene came on where it had um just a girl it felt very much like um kick-ass where hit girl is uh is like fighting to bad reputation it felt like that yeah. same sort of mood which made me roll my eyes a little but then i kind of like that song so it didn't it didn't detract yeah. from good but, song. yeah there's only one bit of that i can actually there's only one bit where i, I thought it was a, it was like dropping a clanger a little bit and that was the come as you are scene because I just really didn't like that Nirvana song being there. <laughs> I just thought that was a weird choice. It was a very background. odd choice. Could have picked on a vinyl one. as well, which yeah. felt weird to me. <laughs> yeah, could it could have picked a better one? Mm. I think a, a better song. Yeah, uh, like there's probably like a, 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 a there's probably like a, a a whole list of like tracks from the '90s that I could have put in that scene instead of that. But there we go. <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird scene that because it, it was it, it it was good, but at the same time, I I didn't like it. I think they also. Oh, sorry, go on. I think it was just the AI hamming it up in the leather jacket. I was like, no, nah. <laughs> <laughs> too too on, hammy, too hammy. <laughs> on the flip side, they had again this where it felt really throwaway, but I liked their inclusion. Was some really cool like nineties R and B. So they yeah. had like Salt and Pepper. They had TLC. Um, but again, like. I think t- like Waterfalls was playing as she was driving down the road to somewhere, if I yeah, remember. Yeah, they were on their way to a military base. It was her and um, Nick Fury. Yeah, and it just it just felt like it was playing in the background for no reason. We get 10 seconds of it, yeah. and then it turns off. And I kind of wish they'd done more with that kind of thing, but, yeah. you know, that happens it'll, again. Ma- it'll make for a good CD at some point. So Yeah, yeah. that happens again when they turn up in um, what state do they go to? louisiana is it yeah louisiana yeah and you get like a a brief snippet of um i can't remember what the song's called how does it go go on sing it for us Greg. oh i don't know if i can i'm not sure what song's about (laughs) no i can't i can't sing it i'm can i should i (laughs) no 
I don't think I should. But it like it comes up for like two seconds and then goes away again. Rather the oh, same as um are you thinking about you gotta be? Yeah. You gotta be bad, you gotta be yeah, bad. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. It comes up for like ten, fifteen seconds and then yeah. fades yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. It's an odd thing to kind of mm. like shoehorn. It, it feels like the soundtrack was an afterthought, in fact. Yeah, in some ways, which is a shame because, like, yeah. especially when something like Guardians of the Galaxy used it so effectively, it it seems yeah. almost a waste because, like, Guardians being the '80s version of a Mar- Marvel film and this having the opportunity to be a '90s nostalgia fest, it didn't really follow up mm. on that. Yeah. At the same time, I liked how restrained it was. Um, I was telling yeah. Marvin Leon after the film how, like, she walks into an internet cafe, and I was fully expecting there to be like a a modem 56k modem gag. And they didn't do it, which it do shows it. It like the, it, it, it cut out and she had to redial. But she didn't. She. It's not like yeah. It's not like she rolled her eyes and then it went. Bah, 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 bah. Like it did yeah. it in the background. It didn't do it as the punchline of a joke. And I thought yeah, that yeah. that showed a lot of restraint because <laughs> that would have been such a go-to. But... Oh, they could have done all of that. They did the loading they... thing. They did the loading thing. That that worked for me. Um, another yeah. thing was like, in typical Marvel fashion, nothing. None of the jokes are given enough time to land. Like mm. there's the 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 beat when she lands in the blockbusters and shoots off um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's face from the True Lies standee. But like it happens in such a quick moment where you don't really get the chance to like actually laugh at it. Or like mm. there's a there's a fight scene where she's doing her quips, and it it falls a bit flat for me because like she's saying. I don't know, Leon. Do you do you remember that like this moment where she's fighting people with the like the restrictors on her hands? Oh, the first the first fight on the scroll ship. Yeah. Do you, and she, like, do you does, guys she know has... how these come off? No. Okay. Something yeah, like something that. like yeah. that. And then it just kind of lands flat because it doesn't have enough time for you to register that she was making a joke or like the audio mix is a bit weird because you could barely hear what she said or at least I couldn't. So I, I think those are that's not yeah specific to this film. That's typical of the MCU like movies in general but that's a shame as well no, yeah right. i think you, you get stuff like that i think when there's so many writers and this had a lot of a lot of writers on there and mm. i think you get that where it, it feels very uh disparate and uh sort of uh piecemeal yeah that's thing i think the writing's at its strongest when it is about character and and theme and i think that uh tied with like uh the cast um, you get a lot of good in those situations. So any any scenes with um, the majority of scenes with uh, Carol and uh, uh, Fury are really good, in my opinion. Um, I especially like any of the scenes with Carol and Maria Rambo. I actually mm-hmm. wish there was way more of that in the film. I wish they had introduced her character way early on in the movie and we got to spend more time as those two because. Uh, I don't know if it's just uh, Larson and Lashana Lynch's chemistry, but I, I think in the small amount of time they had, they did really sell that friendship to me. Yeah, and it, it would have been nice if we got more of it. Actually, those two would have been great as like a, like a, a kind of like buddy movie, with like those two as pilots or something, like a prequel yeah, I'd love to, to Captain see... Marvel. That'd be great. I'd love to see Top Gun with these two. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, like mm-hmm. a, like a like a like a, a Top Gun type thing. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. I did, I want like there's a lot of like with every Marvel film. There's a lot of moments that I really liked. I really liked when uh, she was like redesigning her outfit, and mm-hmm. you can tell like if she would if she was 
if she never became Captain Marvel, if she was just human her entire life, she would be such a like a, a PC Master Race RGB fan. Because I like she's got her little control panel and she like changes the RGB values of her suit using that. I thought that was cool. To um, Easter egg there, uh, when she goes white and green and it mm-hmm. sticks for a while on white and green, that is the original Captain Marvel colours. I think a lot of those were references because even like the super colourful one was from a recent run of Captain Marvel. Like the the bold yeah. neon like white background and yellow and pink tones on the on the lines, yeah. And um, can we can we talk some more about our favorite Flurkin Goose, please? Because Goose is awesome. Another Top Gun reference, by the way. But yeah, yeah. and uh, Goose is actually called Chewie in the comics. In oh, okay. the comics, she is called Chewie, and uh, in the comics, um, it's actually a rocket that has a problem. And realizes that Chewie is a flurkin, and Chewie lays a hundred eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, yeah. And che- uh, Rocket, Rocket wants to kill Chewie. Rocket's, like, Rocket's like, you can't have that. I have to kill. Yeah, that. it's like understandably so. Like we yeah. saw what it did to, to Furies. <laughs> yeah. I love that that um that callback to like how he lost his eye. I love that. That's the explanation. Yeah. Where it's so, it's almost so incidental, and he barely reacts to it happening. Yeah, yeah. Like, but he gets his mother flurkin line, but like. Yeah, it's really undersold, and I like that it's—I don't know—it's the start of his the thing. Yeah, yeah, his the start of his missing eye thing and whatever. Mm. The thing that truly slayed me about the flurkin was when they put the uh, the little Hannibal mask on her. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that bit. That yeah, flurkin gets some good moments. Yeah. So all in all, it's a good warm-up for Endgame. It was a great watch both times and i was into it and yeah although it might not be top tier mcu it's definitely you know definitely a good watch and i would recommend going to see it um kind of rogue one-ish in its positioning because it's like filling in a gap that we already kind of already sort of knew what happened but didn't know sort of thing Mm. so if you are just tuning back in now this is when we're going to start talking about comics so we're done with the Captain Marvel stuff. You are safe. And I would like to open the comic chatter with Ronin Island number one. So this is something all three of us have read, I assume. And I'm correct. Yep. Yes, yes. So this is a book called Ronin Island. And this is by writer Greg Pack, who is the guy that did Met Cadet U, which me and Ray were vibing on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want to go back and check out some of our previous episodes, there's a lot of Met Cadet talk. I suppose I should read the blurb. After a mysterious attack wipes out the major cities of 19th century Japan, Korea and China, survivors from all three lands find refuge on a hidden island and build a new society. Hannah, the orphan daughter of Korean peasants, and Kenichi, son of a great samurai leader, have little in common except for a mutual disdain for each other. But these young warriors will have to work together when an army invades the island with shocking news. There is a new shogun and the island is expected to pay a fail to pay fealty in exchange for protection from a new enemy, a mutated horde that threatens to wipe out all humanity. Ray, first impressions of this book, if you please. I was brought onto it by the fact that it's yeah, written by Greg Pack, but mostly just I like the, the aesthetic. I like this sort of 
Western take on the Japanese style. And it, it, and if you read the comic, you'll realize that it's not really honing in on the Japanese, even though it's it's called Ronin Island, which and the Ronin is a you know is a Japanese archetype. It's actually focused on the um, like bringing together of three different cultures. So it's Korean, Chinese, and Japanese together. And I think it sells this like this aesthetic really well because it has the this sort of shogun era buildings and landscape and like clothing that you'd expect. Um, but it just has like this, this nice modern Western sort of style to it, which I, I really dug. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed these characters. I like that. It's mm. another story that I, um, as I expected from Greg Pak about, you know, um, young people being powerful and like being uh, positive and strong and like fighting for themselves. And I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. How about you? Yeah. Man? Yeah, I found it um, quite a promising starter. I think, as you say, the aesthetic is really cool. Um, I think it does a good job um, sort of pulling in all these uh, different cultural elements. um, And you really get the feeling that this island is like a ragtag bunch of refugees who are sort of uh, following this, uh, like, horrible tragedy um, have sort of formed their own new society and um there are still of the, still some of those past resentments even if they're um under the uh under the radar a bit um for the, the various different clashes between the cultures at this time uh, but I, I i think that it it does get to the heart of what it would be like uh for because yeah, you kind of get like elements of like a Battlestar Galactica type vibe where it's all these people who just like push together and, and different cultures having to push forward and they they carry on these like rites of passage from like various different old ways mm-hmm. um, and they are sort of creating this new thing um, and yeah I, I think that if, if anything like it starts to set up what the rest of the book's going to be about and without spoiling anything, it's a bit more, um, let's say, supernatural in nature. Mm. And I would have been happy had that not been the case. And it was just about the aforementioned Shogun. <laughs> mm. uh, oh. Like that dynamic kind, uh, could have been cool. Or I would have been fine to read like four issues of them dealing with that stuff. And then they drop that stuff. Because I feel like the point that we get in this book I still don't really know much about Kenichi or Hannah. Uh, just I just got tiny little grace notes from the uh, the uh, the sort of coming of age uh, ta- task battle thing they had to do. Yeah, so- I don't really have a sense of who they are. Uh, just mm. just sort of bits and bobs, and I, I could have lived on the island for a bit longer before. Um, the yeah. inciting incident happened. See, I yeah. liked it because I got mad RPG vibes from it. Like the beginning of an RPG story where you've got these two rivals that end up having to work together and then they will have to go off and recruit other people to their party to fight the big bad. Mm. Yeah, so... I kind of like how... <laughs> I get where you're coming from, Leon, because I yeah. could easily just live on this island with these characters and be okay with that. Although I don't I don't, I don't, don't think you were saying you didn't like the, the reveal at the end, but like 
yeah. you would have been fine if it was drawn out a bit longer. Yeah. I, I kind of agree with that. But I do like how broad the archetypes are. I like that it's the rich, stuffy kid against the poor, stubborn kid. And like, there's something satisfying about those yeah. kind of those archetypes. Mm. Um, but yeah, I like what we got. I do like the uh, like funny contrivance of them finishing their coming of age task and then immediately being besieged by outsiders Immediately like in the same yeah yeah it's it, it made me it made me that's, chuckle but like not in an eye roll way yeah that's rpg as hell because that's that's like the kind of thing you get when like so like character a that you get to rename has to go off and help his dad chop wood and and wakes up late <laughs> and gets woken up by his little sister yeah. Um, and then, like, as soon as he gets back from ta- from chopping wood, he has his coming of age ceremony, and right in the middle of coming of age ceremony, meteor hits the town or something like that. You know, it's just this, this RPG pacing that I love. And I know you guys were saying you could have lived in the town a little bit longer, but I wouldn't have wanted to. I'm quite happy with the pace of this. I quite like the fact that there's immediate threat and immediate hook, something to keep me coming back, because. I don't know if that's just me, if I have like a tiny attention span or something, but (laughs) well, (laughs) when I flip that page and there's like the full page spread of the, you know, the incoming attackers, I thought Greg loved this book. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like I immediately thought of you when I saw that. Oh yeah. Greg, Greg loved it. Greg loved it enough to want to buy the, he's going to buy the trade when that comes. (laughs) But yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to shout out um, the colorist uh, Irma uh, Nivilla. I yeah. think I'm butchering that. Likely, I think that um, the uses of like blue during their like uh, test against each other when they're like on the seed that so mm. many different textures. It, mm. it feels it has this great feeling of like you have the island and then you yeah. have the rest of the world, and I thought that stuff was really good. Yeah, and then. Later in the book, the uses like browns, oranges, and reds when yeah. the like uh, the shogunate uh, forces appear yeah. are, are so cool. Like the, the way they reflect off different textures, um, mm. it's so ominous, um, like fire and, on the horizon style. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They suddenly, like dominate the skyline, kind of thing. Yeah, and it's like good use of like silhouettes um, and uh, like uh, uh, like misty effects mm. and like you know just just particles in the air and like it it does have this cool feeling of signaling yeah everything that you know before before everything these characters knew before is it gonna change again yeah and it's it's like it's action-packed and it's anime-esque like greg pack's other work we talked mm. about mecha you and and i'm drawing a distinction here by saying it's anime-esque rather than manga-esque because it actually feels more animated like i could see this as a a movie or an OVA or something because it just it just really does have that vibe and the art style with the dynamic loose scratchy lines helps that because that kind of like speeds everything up and when you're when you're seeing it you can almost see it in motion yeah like it's not uh, like to make the Mech Cadet U comparison again it's not super clean yeah um, like the illustrator Janice Milon, Milona Giannis I think I hope I haven't butchered that um as an aside I love that his or her name is like Bond, James Bond, Janice, Milano Janice. Um, anyway, like I, I think the the illustrations is because it's kind of like more flowing and loose. It has that more animated style. It doesn't, it, like you're saying, it doesn't feel. It feels more like an anime than a manga in that sense. Um, yeah, I really, I really like what it's doing. And I also like some of the like the incidental uh, like speed lines and things where there's a lot of like dashes above people's heads and like 
to like express surprise and movement. I think yeah. they're really, really little like small nudges of, of movement. I think it come across really nicely. Yeah. It's, um, it's really cool for that. The art style really gives it that kind of like dynamic animatedness. That's just great. It's just, mm. and like, it's this very animated texture to like the whole affair, basically. It's just great. And the, the, I think the the colours are fantastic as well, like to go back to what Leon was saying about the colours. And I think what they do for me is they work brilliantly to help describe the island and the locale. They give us like a real sense of place and time. And mm-hmm. it's like a subtle palette that works really, really hard. Because as you notice, as we go through the book, the day progresses and the light changes and everything else and the colours change with that. So mm-hmm. by the time the Shogun's dudes turn up, it's like almost sunset. And you really get that from the colours being used and everything else. It just kind of gives it that, like, sort of helps you kind of, like, helps bring everything together and helps give everything a context. Mm. And then, of course, the designs of the Bionin. Like, the character designs are great, but the character designs of the Bionin. I mean, how am I supposed to say? Am I saying that right, Ray? Bionin. Bionin, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the zombie dudes. Like, those guys are, like, yeah. I love them and you were right I would love them <laughs> they're great so yeah I mean all in all this is like a fun little book and uh, I enjoyed it very much and that is Ronan Island number one and uh, to run through credits for that we have uh, it's written by Greg Pack illustrated by uh, Yanis Milano Yanis coloured by Irma um, Kinvilla lettered by Simon Boland and we have a cover by Yanis Milano Yanis uh, with colours by Masik and yeah there's a couple of variant covers there's a david lafuente one and an ethan young one as well yeah like the main cover is awesome like yeah. mm-hmm. that as you're talking it does have that jrpg vibe and you have the two yeah. uh lead young characters standing there with all these um these these uh like flags uh but they're all damaged in a certain way <laughs> and like the coloring and yeah. just the 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 texture is really good oh, give me give me a playstation logo across the top of that <laughs> yeah <laughs> definitely no it's great i love it and it's another nice one from boom studios so mm-hmm. that is ronan island now um from there is one that me and leon had uh we kind of like vibed on this from the pool list last episode um and this is morning in america um which i don't know about you leon but I, I mean, as a comic, technically, I cannot fault it. It's great. But I, I did have an issue with this. And I think it's a personal one for me. And I think, I think it's just probably just me that has this problem. Because like I was saying previously, I have the attention span of a gnat. But I think it was the pacing. Um, what I will do is I'll read you the blurb. The year is 1983, a series of disappearances afflicts Tucker, Ohio, following the opening of a mysterious new factory. But when the town finds itself under siege from strange monsters, it's up to intrepid girl gang of no-account teen delinquents to try and figure out what's happening and save everyone's lives before it's too late. Now, it sounds really awesome, and the book itself is, it is great. I mean, there's a lot I loved about it. It's just the fact that it just... It felt like part one of issue one. And I don't know why. I don't know if you felt the same, Leon. 
Well, I generally feel that with a lot of number ones, to be honest. But um, in, in this case, not not more so than anything else. But uh, continue. So, like I was saying, like I, I read this and, and you know, decent premise, a bunch of great characters and ideas. Like I loved everyone in it. I was getting some real like mad Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles vibes from the the team, the the the, the girl gang that they had going on. Like I could assign each one of them to a turtle it was great uh but like there just wasn't enough going on to 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 hook me in in issue one like i didn't feel like i mean it was i for me it just felt like a lot of small town stuff and it maybe went too too hard on the small town stuff and everything that was to my taste that is interesting that was happening in the back was was happening in the background like the disappearances and everything else it just seemed like like background noise and it just didn't feel like and then to end the comic where it ended like it it felt like they could have taken it a little bit further and ended it i don't know a a more urgent cliffhanger a more urgent point i don't know but that that was my yeah i guess guess because it's kind of like it's a comedy note isn't it um whereas like you wanted more of a hook yeah yeah because the information that's provided um at the end of the issue it's not news to us but it's news that a character is telling other characters mm. so it, it, we don't have a bombshell to learn instead it's them trying to convey the bombshell to their friends yeah and it just doesn't feel like if it, it, that's why it feels like half an issue <laughs> because they mm. deal they do all of that they set everything up they have all this great characterization and they introduce these awesome characters but then they just play with them for a bit and we don't actually get to see what's going on. Like I'd love a bit more. Ray's going to shoot me now. Cause I'm going to say, I'd love to see more of the monster and more of the. Hey, you do you, man. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you like what you like. <laughs> yeah, I know that that's my issue with it. it. It just didn't, it didn't move like move along fast. And I would have liked to, I would have liked for it to have ended with this, this like group of cool characters like actually, you know, coming face to face with this thing or being inside this factory that's been set up in this town that they're talking about investigating rather than, you know, them just going, let's check it out and the book. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And I, I could have called that. Um, yeah. Like for me, it's a bit different. So I think the characterization in this is really good. I think um, it's really economical. Um, Using some on-screen cheats, because you have a cool thing where you have a a panel where the speech bubbles uh, basically give us a little little rap sheet uh, when they're introducing the characters to us, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And I think uh, just in a few interactions, we get a good sense of the main four of the six sisters Mm. of their personalities. And we we get a bit... um, a bit of home life for uh, Nancy um, and the, the, this issue sort of focused on Nancy a, a bit more. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that stuff's really cool. I think the character designs are quite um, specific and have this sort of sort of America eighties feeling without being like too, mm. too ridiculous. And it does, like you say, have that small town vibe. And sets off this uh, this like mystery. Yeah, but it's funny for me because like um, the end sort of falls flat for me in a different reason um, to you. 
because I like you want to see the monster and I don't care about the monster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and that—that's that, the thing. Like, I, I, I think that, and this is harsh because I don't want to compare it directly. But it, I think that one of the problems is is that we we've had like eighties a bunch of girls together doing cool stuff, and it was it was uh, paper girls, and that is a bit more immediate in getting into its uh, in, into its hook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and it's heavier, like stylized. Um, but I think this works on its own merits in, in different, in different, to different degrees. And I would agree with you that I think that um, uh, the issue could have been longer, or that it could have wrapped up in a more of a, of a hook place. Mm. But I think I, at this point, I don't know what its um, focus is, and if its focus yeah. is on characters, which elements of it kind of suggest that, like how we meet the characters and how we follow um, them. That I think it's successful in that way, and I think that uh, Visaggio yeah. and uh, Aguirre do a good job of uh, paint, sort of giving us this portrait of this town and and these oh. characters. Oh yeah, indeed. I, I you know the character the characterization is is great and it's important. It's just the fact that for me it didn't it it, it because I'm, I mean comics are difficult to make and we have constraints of like uh, how many pages you know like and things like that there are constraints on page numbers and what what you can and can't like get away with and things and and how things should be and it's just it feels like this could have done with being double length or an oversize to get across what i would have liked it to have got across because it felt like they were cutting it in half yeah or maybe economical because there is a bit of a storyline it's only a case of like two three pages but it does feel like an unnecessary complication, and I don't want to go into too much detail. But to do with the uh, the cigarette thing and the brother, I, yeah. I feel like that could have been a bit more straightforward to yeah. get us to where we need to be. I think that was the point where I thought, okay, where's this going? Mm. Because that's you know, I know that they they they're basically trying to get in the explanation, like trying to get they're trying to get this the six sisters to care basically because this is a bunch of people that don't seem to care about an awful lot <laughs> yeah and, apart and from I think each maybe, other and then yeah maybe it would have worked better um and this is armchair uh, armchair yeah. uh, comic writing but yeah. maybe it would have worked better for us if it was if if yeah. say the main character had a sister who was taken yeah. Yeah. or a brother who was taken or something and then yeah. it becomes immediately more personal not just there's something strange going on in this town which it kind of wraps up on mm. um Whereas, like, yeah, if there was more of a personal connection, yeah. um, it sort of heightens the stakes and adds a bit more immediacy. Yeah. But, I mean, all in all, it, it's still a very good comic. And, you know, I I loved the art and the colours. I got this mad Saturday AM, like, thing from it. Like, it, it just felt like a, a Saturday morning. The, the way the art was done and everything, it was just had this, like, Saturday morning cartoon vibe that, for me, was great and is in fitting with the 80s... Um, the 80s aesthetic that they've given this thing and the 80s time it's set in and everything else it just it just felt really good and yeah it's just a Plus shame it, that it, it, it it's just a, such a shame that it couldn't have yeah. gone on a bit longer i mean you know i, I think uh the test would be told on how the second issue plays out because yeah. if the second issue ends and it isn't really going in a direction that interests you then yeah. you know that you can sort of uh it's not gonna it's not gonna um get there for you 
Yeah, Whereas I the mean... second issue might uh, and uh, like sort of make the road forward clearer. Yeah, maybe. It wasn't as it, it just like the cover was super rad as well. Like that was like the cover was like one of the one of the, like I love that with the skeleton and you know the the the, the girls reflected in the uh, in the shades of the skeleton. You know that 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 was brilliant for me. Like I loved that cover. That cover just sold the book to me. It's yeah. just you know. I think though, like I think there's promise here. Like just with like use of the title yeah. and this whole thing of like the the factory and stuff like that i think there's a bigger and the cops not talking about certain things like i think there's a bigger thing at foot here that could make the whole thing more interested and probably pull you back in yeah for sure definitely it's just it's just i it moved a little slow for me i guess is the Hmm. is the is the is the tldr of what i'm trying to tell you but yeah it was great i loved it definitely loved it um other than the fact that you know, I, I I found it a little bit hard going because I, I there was no hook in it for me. But yeah, it was great. Um, so that is Morning in America, and um, full list of credits for that we've got uh, written by Magdalene Visaggio, uh, illustrated by uh, Claudia Agrio, lettered by Zach Sam. Um, we have a cover by. Um, Claudia Aguirre, uh cover by Elizabeth Beals, and there's a cover by um, Re Abrego too. And yeah, it's just uh, it's it's a it's a very pretty book. <laughs> it's very nice. I like it. It's uh, yeah, it's gorgeous to look at, definitely. And that cover is amazing. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's a very great cover. It is, yeah. But yeah, that is a uh, morning in America and. Uh, I just hope that issue two delivers. I really do because I want to like it. I want to like it more. Um, next on the list is Ray. I think you were going to tell us about something, weren't you? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about Die. That's D I E, the new ish comic uh, by Kieran Gillen, um, which we've talked about issues one and two in the past, uh, I believe. But I wanted to touch on issues three and four. Um, so, like, without beating a dead horse, because you guys have already just mentioned the problem with issue ones, and we talk about the problem with issue ones a lot, like how hard it is to judge a comic based on its first issue, um, where the creative team have the opportunity to make decisions that hopefully effectively communicate the intended tone and theme of the story to follow. And not all comics get this right, right? Like, indeed, it seems not all teams consider the pacing of their opening um, issues in the grander scope of the story and instead use it like a pilot to see what works and then adjust it as they go. Um, so in the instance of Die, I won't go into the art by Stephanie Hans or the lettering by Clayton Cowles because we've touched on that in previous episodes. And the art remains just as beautiful and awash with like this diffused fantasy romance that you know we've talked about and was established from the very first panel of the first issue. Uh, instead, I want to kind of comment on the plot of what um, of Die episodes, uh, sorry, issues three and four because. Die is a really fantastic example of a story where its first few chapters are really well considered. Um, It's doing like a really perfect, not quite bait and switch, but like I want to call it a bait and switch to grab the reader's interest before really subtly Trojan horsing in new ideas, which don't jar from what they've established from the first issue and the first page. Like I'm being deliberately vague um, because I don't really want to spoil anything. And it's not really a mind blowing revelation, but 
issue three introduces a new element into the current mix of uh, I think what we said is like Dungeons and Dragons RPG meets Jumanji Spiriting Away, um, which is the, the the plot that we've seen so far. Um, but it adds this new element in the form of literary allusions, bringing it a lot closer to my original thought of it being like very Sandman inspired, because that's the feeling I got from the beginning. Um, and so the author, Kieran Gillen, um, even outlines this process himself in the notes of issue three, stating that uh, where issue one was the pitch, Issue two is the frenzied tasting platter. And then issue three is a quote, oh, we're also this, end quote. So issue three brings in this new meta element, which if it was treated with like a heavier hand could easily feel out of place. But they managed to weave in all of these threads together without any one diluting or like overshadowing the other. And then issue four springs back to the more traditional D&D adventure scenario um, and then takes a moment to to breathe after bringing in these new elements from issue three. So issue four has some like tr- genuinely heart-rending moments, uh, which weave together an understanding of like the characters and an understanding of the complicated gaming logic that dictates their role-playing archetypes. Um, so there's this moment in which a character self-professes, like they, they do this rpg-ish action which could feel so trite but it she says that it's so stupid and small but i'm so happy and i'm like i'm right there with them um in what this this moment is and like die feels like a mastery of everything that i love about video games and role-playing fantasy narratives in that it knows that these archetypes and like from the outside seemingly arbitrary logistical uh, restrictions such as a magic character needing to consume an item before they can cast spells um, it can easily fall into becoming trite and mechanically dull but when used right can be shorthand for a a much larger like character trait so i.e the nature of addiction in a role which demands you to be an addict and that was something that was established in in the second issue of die and like the best touchstone i can think of to express this is like Thor's hammer in Age of Ultron, where the payoff of what can be seen as like a gimmick um, that only the worthy can wield Mjolnir is set up in the party scene uh, where even the most virtuous Avenger is only able to nudge the hammer. So when the newly introduced and suspicious vision nonchalantly hands Thor his own hammer, it like it transcends the gimmick and really definitely explains so much about what that character is. And this book is 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 doing that like every other page. And I adore it. And I know that you guys are already into it, but like I, uh, I know that you haven't caught up on issues three and four. But Greg, based on how much you love like D and D rules, I think you should pick this up and continue and persist because it's just it's it's oh, so yeah. damn good. And that's that's the piece I wanted to say about Die. I think everyone should read it, especially if they're fans of games or fantasy or D and D or just you know like these game the gaming logic in general. I need to hop hop back on that horse in between reading everything else <laughs> yeah i hope i've sold it for you again yeah, no, you, like it, really, you, it doubles down on it i was sold on it anyway it's just something where <laughs> i've been it's, it's one of those things where i've been waiting and i'm gonna get it when it hits tra- when it comes to trade i think that's fair um but again i was yeah. just, i was really impressed by the turn that it kind of does in issue three that again i don't want to spoil but like it's not it's not a huge revelation but it's it's also doing more than we even suspected from the first couple of issues and it's it's yeah. doing it well yeah cool right then so what i'm about to do is i'm about to take you guys into space but i'm going to take you into space via saturday night fever 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is a comic called Astro Hustle. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is Astro Hustle number one. And uh, this is a 70s sci-fi B-movie space disco of neon explosions. Oh, I just Googled the cover for this. <laughs> it looks like an old like Atari cartridge or something. Or like Yeah, yeah it's this looks great. Like yeah, neon. It's, it's Oh my god, yeah. Um I'm just gonna read the blurb. <laughs> so um Chen Underloo, the black sheep of a prominent activist family, returns after being accidentally put in cryostasis for sixty years. Chen, a cosmic criminal, wakes up to find his younger brother is now the president of the galaxy. Chen does what he knows best. He steals stuff and causes a problem. So, um, wh- where do I start? Honestly, like, gorgeous art with a retro edge. It's bold, it's bright, it's in your, it's, it's as, as in your face as the story content. I mean, this is like, has Flash Gordon like pumping through its veins. <laughs> this is the kind of world we're going into. The best way to describe it is is to bring up, you know, the um, Guardians of the Galaxy two. You know the Guardians Inferno music video. Have you guys seen that? Obviously, I'm assuming you both have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's that. <laughs> it's that. And it's you know like you know there's there's the seventies porn stashes and all that stuff. It's it's cheesy. It's cheeky. And it's a really brilliant slice of retro sci-fi is the character designs and the ship designs are fantastic i like this whole 17th 18th century british navy pirate thing that they've got going on with this like in space so (laughs) 17th 18th century pirates um with a bit of disco flair and the 17th 18th century british navy with a bit of disco flair and then like just just put it in space and you've pretty much got what we're looking at. Um, it, it has me hooked. It feels very fresh and it's bold and it's what I needed. Like on that particular day as well, after I finished work, I took, I, I sometimes I go and pick my comics up and, um, cause Sophie finishes like an hour or two after me sometimes, some days. So on Wednesdays, if that happens, I go and pick up my comics and then what I do is I go and sit in cafe and uh, buy a coffee and sit and read my comics in a coffee shop because that's not the most hipster thing I think I've ever done or will ever tell you that I do (laughs) (laughs) I go buy like a hazelnut latte or something and just go and sit and read it but yeah never be ashamed of who you are Greg yeah I read this in Cafe Nero and like straight after work and it just completely lifted my spirits because it's just so electric, this whole book. It's just like, uh, exactly what I needed. And it, it like the opening two pages, if that doesn't sell this to you, I don't know what will. Because you'd be forgiven to think you've walked in on a porno with the opening two pages. Like the, the setup, the set is like the setup's there, the setup's there, but then it does something else. It's great. Um, with the colours being super bright and bold as well, it just helps with the aesthetic they're building and trying to sell, and it really draws you into this kaleidoscopic, eclectic world of aliens and flamboyant sci-fi styling, and it's incredibly dynamic and expressionistic as well, and it's just got this, like, beautiful retro, like, uh, retro comic book 
cartoon feel to it and it's just it's just fantastic for that and you know it, it, it's it's fast paced but in a good way and you want to get you want to let it carry you off into the laser fire and that's that's exactly what happens and i must say that i'm a particular fan of a there's a particular sequence in here with a prison escape sequence towards the end where this like fucking space galleon <laughs> crashes in through a wall with like some weird battering ram thing and then people get out of their prison cells and they're like some space pirate ship and somehow this thing can like do like warp speeds and stuff but like how do people breathe on the deck and everything i don't know but also i don't care it's <laughs> it's just fantastic um and it's something you should all consider adding to your pool list because it's only four issues long and uh <clears throat> oh my gosh yeah the whole thing the whole thing is just inspired it's funny it's you know bright bold silly violent everything that greg looks for in a comic and i believe that you two should probably check it out because i think you will both love it definitely so that is astro hustle number one and <clears throat> for a list of credits we have the story by a giantitz art is tom riley colors ursula decay and letters by crank and that's crank with an exclamation mark and yeah it's just like it's great it doesn't pull any punches and i love it yeah it's it's like probably probably like um one of my favorite comics in the past six months i'd have to say actually so onward from there to the next thing on our list which i believe is the fact that leon has been checking out the second part of umbrella academy second trade uh yes uh dallas um I've not got much, too much more to say about this, but it is interesting um, reading this, um, having watched half the show, um, and also like the time uh, that's passed since mm. this came out. Because, sorry, just to say, this is what I meant when you remember when we were talking about Umbrella Academy before, and I said that it leans heavily on the second trade. Yeah, the show does. Yeah, you, you get what I mean now. A bit, because I'm yeah. only halfway through the show. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Especially <clears throat> with the Hazel and Shacha stuff, who are yeah. sort of repurposed um, a little bit in the show. But yeah, it, it's um, it's more of what you got from uh, the uh, Apocalypse Suite um, in the first run. And yeah, it's more time there. We get to like find out more about these characters and get a bit more backstory on number five and what the hell uh, he was up to and why he's such a badass now. Um, and you get some really cool uh, like action scenes and like battles and, and like fights and uh, the Dallas and it refers to uh, the uh, JFK assassination, uh, which plays a big part in there. And the first issue yeah. has a really cool cover with number five just holding a, a sniper rifle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm. Like we said, uh, the previous episode, uh, previous episode uh, very dark, <laughs> this point. Actually, not as dark as the show. That was yeah. something I was going to bring up. Like, having read this, I, I, I found this was, like... It was more... Um, it's more upbeat than the show, actually. It's got more yeah. of a sense of humour than the show has. Like, the, the first trade, because I've now read... 
um, Apocalypse Suite and I've started Dallas, like, it's... I think they're dark in different yeah. ways because yeah. I think the dark stuff here, because the show has more time to ha- have, like, character interactions, that's when you get that stuff. But I think because there's so little time in these books, which is only, like, six issues each story... I think some of the stuff is more implicit and mm. more unsaid or in the background, which is quite like the implication of them is, is quite, quite dark. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I'm going to finish the show that I just find hour long Netflix shows. <laughs> stop, stop this nonsense, Netflix. Oh, um, I, I just, I just like, you other streaming shows like there's only one network that are allowed to do hour long shows and that's HBO and they've proved themselves. Oh man, Netflix can do it because I tank. No, they stuff. can't. <laughs> I don't I do. think they like, can either. <laughs> I, I I can sit there and and I can just churn through it. Like, do you know what? Like, it's really distressing for me at the moment. It's the fact that like we've got Brooklyn Nine Nine season five now on Netflix. And I've almost finished it already, and I only started watching it on Friday. <laughs> that was a half an hour, or twenty minute apps. That's yeah, what comedy I mean. shows. It's distressing. Count. Like, why can't that be longer? Why can't I have hour of Brooklyn Nine Nine? It wouldn't be funny anymore. <laughs> like, but that's the thing. Like, the pacing yeah. really suffers from me with a lot of these Netflix shows, and I think it's a hand in hand thing. Where it's not just that they're all hour long episodes when they don't really need to be, but it's also they're not episodes in the traditional sense. Or, yeah. uh, so many of these Netflix shows are uh, trying to do that thing where it's one story split into 10 or 13 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Netflix misses that more than they more than they hit that. Whereas mm-hmm. like HBO would, would hit that. <laughs> but um, so it does make it, it harder and like it makes them more bingeable, definitely. Yeah. But like, oh, when you've watched two episodes back to back, and I'm just like, oh my god, I could watch another episode, but do I have another hour? I I, I don't know. So I, I I found the series like when I'm watching it, it's fun. Yeah. But when I finish an episode, I'm not hungry to oh. uh, jump to the next, oh, Leon, even though I have been enjoying always, these comics quite a lot. Leon, there's always another hour. There's always more peanut butter cups in the fridge. Yeah, you say that though, and there is another hour, but that hour I can relocate to something like that uses that hour more effectively. Yeah, but sometimes I just don't want to. <laughs> and and that's what's I, I think that's what's brutal in this particular case because I've been reading the book, which is like yeah. the Cliff Notes version of a story, even though it is the story. Yeah. Um, then to watch the Netflix one where they like, yeah, we're going to give you this story, but we're going to <laughs> stretch it out uh, over yeah. like ten hours. It I, I I could have read the third trade, like the time I've spent collectively reading uh, Umbrella Academy, and I yeah. read comics quite slow, is uh, it's like the time it takes for me to watch like maybe a third of the season. <laughs> I piled through the first trade in an afternoon. Like I but I'm I'm quick at reading like I watch shows, I I binge shows, but I binge comics as well. Mm. So I'm just fast with both, but like I don't know. It's like when I pulled an all-nighter and watched all of Stranger Things in one night. It's just... I can just do that. I don't know why I can do that. I just can. Like My attention span isn't good for anything else. But... I think what happened to me is that I was a big proponent of binge-watch TV. Mm. 
and then we hit peak TV, and now I'm kind of over binge watch TV, but now it's the main <laughs> model to watch TV. But like I, I've done that already, and now I kind of miss episodes. I miss like things building up, and I miss um, having some breathing room between episodes. I miss yeah. um, talking to people about like uh, theories about what we think is going to happen. I, I, I do kind of miss that. And it's not before when I was binge watching stuff, the stuff had been released as episodes already and I was just waiting for the season to end and watch it all in one go. But now things are being made to binge watch, which means that you could, I don't even get that benefit anymore because I can watch three episodes and they've deliberately made it. So there's things that, uh, that are just not even going to make any sense until like episode eight. Whereas mm. like, before you'd have these little hints of stuff that was coming and you could theorize and stuff. So, I mean, I watch it all and there's uh, none's better than the other, but I'm just saying, man, it's hard now. It's hard. <laughs> I'm, having, I'm having trouble with it. More importantly, have you gone back and listened to the black parade now? Having, no, having had this as a lens. No, I was, I was going to do it after I, um, finished in uh, hotel oblivion, which I was hoping to read before this cast. But, um, I haven't had time yet, but I'm going to read that. But then, because I'm going to finish the, finish it and then uh, mm. be back on my bullshit and, and uh, dive in on. So uh, uh, I'm I'm going to bless myself with the black parade uh, after I've uh, eaten my greens. Yeah, I, I went back and watched the black parade. Uh, listen to the black parade. Sorry, after um, watching the show and before reading the comics, and mm-hmm. I get it. I get it now. And I, you know, I'm eating enormous slabs of humble pie. <laughs> because, but yeah, no, it's great. It actually, I, I actually liked it. And having, like, I, I mean, I know that's probably not, not the intention, but having, like, Umbrella Academy as context, like, gave me something to anchor that album to. And now it's actually really good. But yeah. So that is the Umbrella Academy. And um, we gave out... Uh, credits for that last time but um i can do that again so the creative team uh story is by jared way art is by gabriel bar uh colors by dave stewart letters by blambots nate piercos cover art by gabriel bar and uh, we've got alternate covers by a whole army of people um including jim lee and um and james jean who did the artwork for the black parade album uh, so he did the art for like the inside of the album cover and stuff like that. Yeah, and it works. So that is Umbrella Academy Dallas. Um, so next one on the list is another Greg one. And this is a book called Assassin Nation. Now, again, where do I start with this? Because it's foul-mouthed, it's violent. It's fun and punches this comic does not pull. Like, one of the characters is literally called Fuck. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it, oh my gosh, yeah. I, I'll read the blurb. I'll read yeah, the blurb. what the hell is this? <laughs> I'll read the blurb. So... Assassination. Hot off her breakout success at Marvel, two-time Eisner Award winner Erica Henderson, the unbeatable Squirrel Girl and Jughead, teams up with Kyle Starks, writer of Sales Beast 
Rick and Morty for a hilarious twist on the hitman trope that will have readers laughing in the aisles over Assassin Nation. The world's former greatest hitman hires 20 of the best assassins in the world to be his bodyguards. These mean as hell hired guns and murderers must work together to keep the new crime boss safe while attempting to solve the mystery of who's trying to off him. Uh, with the same laugh until you cry spirit of action comedies like Hot Fuzz, Tropic Thunder and Deadpool, Assassin Nation is the bombastic side splitting murder fest you've been waiting for. And boy does it deliver. So this is like, yeah, it's hilarious. Um, so oh, it's this nicely detailed cartoon art and it finds its strength in the wonderfully bombastic and diverse volume 11 world of contract killers as you know, we have just heard in the blurb, all of these characters have their own quirks and unique designs. And it was like looking at a box of G.I. Joe toys or Masters of the Universe toys where you've got like all these different characters and they all have like this, this one thing that they do, this different thing. Like they're all dressed differently or they all like, everyone's so like extrapolated. Like everything is this massive caricature of everything else. It's great. Um, and they all have these unique designs and, I just, one thing that actually like came into my head when I was reading this is how much I actually want a line of action figures based on the characters in this comic, like complete with assassin scorecards and bios. So like, you know, like on the back of some action figure boxes when you were a kid, like on the back of say, if you bought a transformer, you would get like a little card that would have like that guy um, or, or that, that tr particular transformer's like specialisms and whatever else and like their power ratings and you could play top trumps with them so <laughs> this is what i want for these assassins i i you know what like even better i want i want a card game like a, a, a tr top trumps card game with these assassins especially like some of the names as well it's great like the writing is um, is awesome it has this like comedic edge which it pulls from the downright detachedness of the world that we're going into this like blown out world of contract killers where everyone knows everyone and there's a ranking system and everyone's a fan of everyone else's work and it's just like th this whole scene where they just introduce themselves to it because this guy when he invites them all he invites them all to a party like this this like number one crime boss throws a party for the, he like invites them all into his home and they're all just kind of like schmoozing and like drinking beer and being like oh yeah hey you're the guy that did this and you're the guy that killed six guys with one bullet and all this and they're all kind of like getting each other's autographs and stuff like that and it's just so surreal it's great um i don't know how this ranking system is regulated by the way or how they decide who's number one but i i have yet to fully find out and i'm invested i want to know because it's great it, it's just chock full of amazing action sequences which I will draw attention to some particular gems. Uh, there's a three-panel neck-snapping sequence, which is really cool. Um, and the breakdown of action on the page and how it's communicated is great. Like, this three-panel... Like, you could... I mean, like, when you when you think about breaking someone's neck, you could do it in two panels, right? Or you could even do it in a single panel. You could just show the, the head turning. But to break it down into three panels kind of makes it more visceral... And you can actually kind of see it and feel it, like, broken mm. down like that. It's just so much better. You know what this whole thing sounds like? It sounds like what I assumed that uh, the Continental TV show is. That uh, Yeah. Yeah, that, like, uh, it's John Wick world John Wick. set TV show. <laughs> this is what it feels like. <laughs> 
This is yeah. kind of this sounds like what I wanted the John Wick comic to be <laughs> instead of it being focused on John Wick but being focused on like colorful cast of assassins. Sounds yeah. cool. Yeah. No, yeah, it's um it's like the three three short panels is the perfect measure of time for an X-Nap. <laughs> I stand by that now. That is now I've been showing it in this book. I stand by it. That is the perfect the perfect amount of time to spend on snapping someone's neck. <laughs> it's it's perfect how they do it as well and like oh my gosh. Um some of the onomatopoeia in this book is amazing as well. Um, it, it, the only word for it, really, to be honest. Like, if I said to you that someone got scannersed, <laughs> like, and the word scannersed was was a, a, a an onomatopoeia as it was happening, like, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. <laughs> or if I said that someone got tromed, for example, and tromed <laughs> was the onomatopoeia as it was happening, <laughs> what would you think was happening to those people? Like, Those are good film film nerd onomatopoeias, I think. Yeah. Like, it, it works so well. And the Tromad one's, like, inspired. Like, the lettering design on it is amazing. It's just all brains and eyeballs. And it looks like an oozy pile of meat splattered across this, like, awesome action sequence of three guys getting Tromad by one bullet. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not going to tell you what Tromad is. You either know or you don't. But <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and the bit where the guy gets scanners to buy the sniper at the beginning of the book, like, yeah, that's brilliant too. And it's really satisfying to say these out loud as well. So. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and then like to top it all off, like the cherry on top of this entire book is this double page spread of a car exploding. <laughs> I can't talk about it with a straight face. <laughs> it sounds like it's... The uh, like prototypical uh, Greg book. Oh yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> you sound think... like you're having a lot of fun with it, so that's cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think you two need to read this. You need to put, you need to check out issue one because it's insane. Um, and like, it's just like I want to frame those two pages. The bit where it all kicks off, like. I want to frame those two pages with the the car explosion. I want to frame the bit where it all kicks off and we get this like grid of everybody pulling weapons. Yeah, is like, this this Mexican standoff thing? Either... Like, like you can yeah. just kind of hear all the clicking and. Like I was Sorry. looking at the front cover of this comic. Is that what that that spread looks like? Because the front cover of this is ridiculous. Like the world's most ridiculous Mexican standoff where everybody's got. <laughs> gun pointed at everybody else and like ducking under and over each other's arms it's brilliant. no it's not it's not it's not that but it's like in the party the point where um you've got some of the assassins that have been invited to the party have actually been paid to kill the guy who's paying them to protect him or something like that and they all <laughs> right. start pulling weapons and you get this little grid of them all just going like pulling cool. guns and then like the other half defend him he's like i'll pay you double whatever the other guy's paying if you defend me and he's like double okay <laughs> and uh yeah i just i just love like that this book has fun and, and it manages to build tension while being funny and it does it so effortlessly as well it's like great at what it does and the way the it uses color to indicate mood and focus in the panels to kind of help build that tension and and with the shadowing and shadows in the in the in the artwork and everything else and at the same time it's being this like the most hilarious thing ever it's just it's great i love it that just gives texture to the whole thing and it's just fantastic so yeah that that is a plus plus from greg for that one and that is assassination and i'm gonna get you a list of credits 
So, list of credits for Assassination. Um, the uh, creator and writer is Kyle Starks, and Erica Henderson is a uh, creator, artist, and uh, has done the cover for it as well. Uh, Darren Bennett is letterer. Uh, John Moison, editor. Uh, Andre Juarez is logo design, and Karina Taylor, production design. So, I'm going to read out some Assassin names, because we've got the first 20 here on the first page. So, Assassin Workings, Assassin, Assassin Rankings Worldwide. We have number one is Fernando. Number two is Taipan. Number three is Niles Roosevelt Axelrod. <laughs> number four is Chad Fingerman. Number five is simply called Smoke. Number six is Wistful Stan. I love his introduction in the book as well. He's great. Uh, number seven is Desert Regal. Uh, number eight <laughs> is uh, a guy called Tanaka. Number nine is Wintergreen. Number 10 is called Frankie Townhouse. Number 11 is the Red Scorpion. Number 12 is Meat Stick. Number 13 is Smush Walker. Or Smush Walker. Number 14 is Connie the Tank. You've got the Mamba Twins at number 15. Uh, Number 16 is David Bowie Knife. (laughs) (laughs) Number 17 is El Sicario. Number 18 is Rumble Death Patch. Uh, number 19 is Dave, and ranked 20 is Fuck Tarkington. <laughs> His name is actually Fuck. Oh, and, and they do like this whole thing when they introduce him as well. I, I have to read this joke out because it's great. Like, um, did you say your name was Fuck? What the hell kind of a name is that? Well, my pappy wanted a boy named Sue situation, but was worried naming a boy after a girl might also arise some homosexual type situations. So he felt this was the rightful compromise. Or he felt this was rightful compromise. Did it work? Well, I'm tough as hell, but sexually ambiguous. So think about the word fuck. God, what the fuck? <laughs> All right. <laughs> tough as hell, like a really harsh swear word, but also sexually ambiguous. But yeah, no, I loved it. It's great. It is. It is probably like, again, like one of my favorite comics. So this and Astro Hustle are like vying for top place right now. Astro Hustle kind of takes it a little bit, but both of them are fantastic. So there we go. That is Assassin Nation. And that brings us on to uh, you guys with Genlock. Yeah. Or Genlock. I'm not sure because I don't know what this is. Genlock. So I'm not going to talk about this for too long as it is not a comic. (laughs) It's not. It is not a comic, uh, but it it, uh, has a lot of influences in there which come from, like, anime, manga, and, I'd say, comics in general. But, yeah, Genlock is uh, a sci-fi animation uh, that is from the Rooster Teeth uh, network, or Mm -hmm. basically production house, and you may know them, Red vs. Blue, Ruby, and a bunch of other things. And... um, in that uh, in that same tradition, uh, this is in the same. So it's 3D animation, but with like uh, 2D filters on top. And yeah, it's a mech show set during uh, 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 it's during a warring period in like a dystopian future. And we are with the polity like coalition of like different groups who are trying to hold off this like horrible like weird nanomachine evil force called the union and we basically follow a bunch 
of um, these like soldiers and recruits who are doing their thing. And at the beginning of the show, I'm not going to go into any like super details or anything, but at the beginning of the show, we start off with like those uh, sort of cool like walking tank mechs. Um, but then we like get up into like proper like Gundam esque uh, like mobile suit or like fr- uh, frame type. Um, Air, like suits and um yeah i mean like my overall thing on this i've just got a few points i think it looks really cool um i think it does things with the war storyline and the character uh beats and theming more than i thought it would so i was pleasantly surprised by that um i think that the um the action is really well shot uh, I mean, it, it hits on a lot of, like, well-worn tropes, especially, like, mech tropes of uh, things of, like, younger people being uh, sent uh, off in uh, having to fight a war in, like, big, like, humanized, um, like, monster, mechanical monsters. But I think it, it, it's, it's, uh, it knows its history, uh, it's aware of that, and it does um, pay homage and feed those things in, but also offer a bit more of a postmodern look on those things while still giving you like fun cool um action sequences and um like delving into sort of the psychology of what uh this this like war scenario would would have on these people um and yeah i I quite enjoyed it i'm six episodes in i believe rahul's finished it but i think one of my favorite things about this show is the characters um i think they have got a really good um crew of uh, representative like diverse um like characters but all of them have like uh interesting backstories or stories in 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 the show and they've all got really uh that they're like their personalities shine through when they're in their mech suits, which are called uh, holons in this. And it's mm-hmm. like a, a thing where they don't actually get into the, the robot. Uh, they, uh, they sort of psychically control them to, to dumb it down. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite fun. Um, Michael B. Jordan's produced on the show, but he also voices uh, Julian Chase, who's like the lead. You have Dakota Fanning there, Maisie Williams, uh, David Tennant, um, and yeah, I think one of the issues I can have with this style of animation is that while I think like robotic action scene fights look cool, sometimes I feel the character models themselves can't emote or they don't emote as much as you'd get with like traditional, say like 2D animation or something like that, or um, like uh, anime or something. But I think those gaps are covered by the voice work which i think is really good um and often will um sort of take you over that uh i, I think it connects the dots so when there are any sort of shortcomings in that area you don't really feel it as much because the the voice acting is so good but um yeah those are my general overview points on it i may have more to say when i finish the show how are you um, what were your feelings Rahul? 
Yeah, um, echoing a lot of what you said, like the fact that it's somewhat well-worn anime, um, young children sent off to war in giant machines, the tropes. Um, but it does just enough new stuff to keep it interesting and not be not be trite. Like I really like this whole mind transference thing that you touched on. And it does some really interesting things with what that what that means and like um, how that changes your humanity and, you know, those sort of questions it, it, it's asking, which is really interesting. I think the the voice cast is what got me onto it to begin with. Like you mentioned, Michael B. Jordan, Dakota Fanning. Um, don't know if you mentioned David Tennant, who plays the uh, the Doctor, which I thought is kind of a cool, like, nod to his role as the Doctor in Doctor Who. Um um, yeah, generally, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. My girlfriend really likes it. Uh, like you were saying, the the animation sort of betrays a lot of uh, the expressiveness that could come through visually, because I don't think it's that um, that detailed in some ways in both like the the style on screen and also the fluidity of the animation, which can be quite rigid. But like when you get the fight sequences and stuff, it can it, it flows really nicely, and there's some really creative um, like framing and action um in, in the animation which is kind of cool um i think yeah and a, another thing that uh, brought me onto it is that evan narcisse who is uh a writer for black panther is another favorite of mine on like on his podcasts and um just on twitter i follow him yeah, he's one of the writers for the show that sort of got me onto it yeah i think it's really good i don't want to say too much because you haven't finished it but i think it the it's eight episodes. They're fairly short each. They're like 20 minutes a pop. It does round off quite nicely. Um, and something that's unrelated to the show, but related to like the method of getting it. Um, I, I subscribed to the Rooster Teeth channel to, to watch this and I've had real trouble like unsubscribing from it. So that's just some warning to our listeners. Maybe like, uh, know that it's a bit of a headache to get unsubscribed from the Rooster Teeth uh, platform. Why would you want to unsubscribe? You've got years and years and years of uh, Red vs. Blue and Ruby to watch. I don't care at all about <laughs> Red vs. Blue. Uh, Ruby, I actually wouldn't mind checking out, especially now that I feel like I'm tied into an additional month that I didn't want to be tied into. I might give that a look. Uh, but all of the like the personality podcast, game, you know, YouTube stuff, I'm not really that interested in, if I'm being honest. But it's worth the cost of admission just for this show. I think it's it's really good and and worth your time so, yeah. isn't red versus blue on netflix i think it is yeah or at least yeah. in part or like maybe some features are on are on netflix but yeah god red versus blue i remember that from years ago yeah i had somebody lend me a dvd of it and i didn't like it so i'm not gonna pay for it but yeah damn that's a throwback yeah <laughs> um so Although, sorry, there. before before oh. we catch up, just speaking of Red vs. Blue, uh, New Halo coming out on PC. Like, nothing comics related. I just think, I'm, I never never having played Halo, um, I'm quite excited for that. So just, this is just like, just it's like every, every Halo game in a collection getting chucked up on PC, which I'm quite pleased with. Yeah, pretty it's much. About, it's, it's about the, time. <laughs> it's the main trilogy and it's Reach, and I think yeah. maybe a couple of others as well. So yeah, sounds cool. Oh, that's going to be yeah. so lit. Friday Discord's playing Halo. <laughs> so... <clears throat> Giant robots. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the last one on the list. This is Transformers number one, and uh, this is a new, bold new era because this is like Transformers going back to number one. So IDW are publishing Transformers, and IDW have like reset the clock, as it were, um, and we're getting this this whole new kind of fresh 
take on Transformers. And it is a new era indeed. And I'm excited. Um, it's an introduction to something that is really, really familiar to me. But yet yeah, it feels so incredibly fresh. Such a unique thing. Like, to be able to do that is something that I think is kind of cool. Like, to make it to make it feel fresh to me, someone who's been living in this on Cybertron for the past 25 years of his life or whatever, you know. It, it's kind of cool. And, uh, yeah, so let's go ahead and give you the blurb, as is the thing. So, a new era dawns. In the infinite universe, there exists a planet like no other, Cybertron. Home to the Transformers and a thriving hub for interstellar commerce. It is a world brimming with organic and constructed diversity. Immense structures lie in its landscape. Mechanical giants roam across its surface. I almost want to do this in the voice from uh, the first episode of Transformers. Um, when they're giving like the whole like introduction. Uh, or f- the, the voice from the movie, in fact, when they introduce the movie. It's like, the year is 2005. Go on, give it your best go. <laughs> A world brimming with organic and constructed diversity. Immense structures lie in its landscape. Mechanical giants roam across its surface. Starship-sized titans orbit its skies, keeping a constant protective watch above and below. Ancient transformers merge into its very fabric. Small, mysterious creatures skulk in its shadows. It is a truly amazing realm, long untouched by war and exuberantly reaching for the stars. This is the Cybertron that Optimus Prime and Megatron vie for in this bold new origin, a world of seemingly endless peace. All that changes when Bumblebee and Windblade take a newly forged Cybertronian on his first voyage through through this world of wonders. They are confronted by the hard reality of the first murder to have occurred on Cybertron in living memory. Ooh, yes. I liked it. Yes. <laughs> there, were, there were hints of Twilight Zone in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I Got tried. Next past or like I that. tried. It's just like the, the year is 2005, like from the movie, you know, it's just there. It's just the hair metal just rattling away in the background. But anyway, yeah, so Peacetime Cybertron. It's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And the writing is great. Like, the pacing and the introduction to the world it is really cool. Like, the way they do it as well. You actually feel like you are experiencing everything for the first time as a freshly forged Cybertronian, like Rubble. So, Rubble is the uh, the, the new Cybertronian that uh, they are leading him to his, his place of work. They're going to teach him something about Energon Engineering. And um, it is Bumblebee's job to get him there. And... As they're travelling across the Cybertronian landscape and everything else, it, it feels fresh. It feels like you are experiencing things through Rubble's eyes, like you are seeing everything for the first time. Like the way this it, it's interesting to go back to the beginning and to see an entirely fresh take on the story. A time before Civil War on Cybertron. The way colour it's just yeah, it just works so well. And the way colour and lighting is used in this book in harmony with the sharp angular lines uh, forms of the characters and the landscapes and everything is just it's fantastic it's like this cold metallic landscape that's actually more than meets the eye like everything else in this book i mean i particularly like the beginning of the book as well i got some like 2001 space odyssey vibes with the this like this new cybertronian like emerging from a canyon and climbing out into the light 
onto this double page spread view of a beautiful sunset with a gorgeous Cybertronian vista. It just kind of just felt like I just wanted the 2001 Space Odyssey music going in the background as that was happening. Like the... Like I could, I could hear it. I could hear it as I was reading it. Um, and it has some cool design elements on this first page in particular as well. The, the layout and panel styling looks like a PCB. It, it feels like we are being woken up or switched on for the first time. Like a book opening that simultaneously says welcome and welcome back. And it's a true primer for what life is like in this this peacetime version of Cybertron. It's a great story hook as well. Later on with the way they have the interactions between Orion Pax, Optimus and Megatron. Um, which I won't spoil. And it's just a general overview of an interesting world teeming with life. And it's just great at what it does, especially in the styling and the colours and the art is is fantastic. Like these sharp angular designs and the Transformers designs are spot on. I you know, I love how clean everything looks, how polished everything looks, because we are in a world constructed primarily of metal and although there are organic life forms there the main focus and the main the main life form on this planet is an inorganic one it is the transformers themselves the cybertronians and it's just yeah it's just like a brilliant a brilliant way to introduce a new world or a new take on a world and i think it works exceptionally well and uh it's a good hopping on point i'd recommend it to anyone with an interest in transformers or anyone who you know wanted a jumping on point who wanted to get into the idw transformers stuff but had no way in no way on the train this is your way on this is your ticket to ride as it were and i was impressed by it as a a long-time transformers fan i loved it so also there's like a little bit of a, a blurb at the beginning which i should read out um like a little thing kind of the the main introduction like the primer it's like a black page and it just says the story so far in white and it says before an endless war raged between the autobots and the decepticons before orion pax took on the mantle of optimus prime before earth ever learned about the strange robotic alien beings from cybertron the transformers there was peace there was society and there was wonder join us now at the dawn of a bold new era and this is written by Brian Ruckley. Art is by Angel Hernandez and um, Katchit Whitman. So um, Hernandez does pages 1 to 9 and 14 to 20. Katchit Whitman uh, does pages 10 to 13. Colours by Joanna Lafuente and letters by Tom B. Long. And uh, it is edited by David Marriott and Tom Waltz. And yeah, it's great. I'm on board. Fully on board with that new Transformers book. More on board with that than I was with IDW's other... Um, I mean, like, Lost Light was the best Transformers book they had in a long time, and that was great. But um, out of the Hasbroverse stuff, we had this, like, solo Optimus Prime book, and it wasn't that good. I didn't like it. Um, and I didn't like what they were doing with the Transformers in the Hasbroverse stuff, so I'm liking the fact that they've rebooted it all. Because Lost Light came to an end, and it was a poignant end. It was a nice end. And now they've done this, and I'm on board with this. I like where this is going. So, yeah, there we go. And I think that brings us to the end of the list. I think we're out of things to talk about and we're now on to the pull list, aren't we? So, 
this is going to be the pool list for the 20th of March and the 27th of March. So 20th of March is when this episode will be available. 27th is the following week. Now, um, do you want to kick us off, Ray? I can do, although I don't actually have anything for the 20th. Um, I did want to bring up something that came out on the 13th, which was the magnificent Ms. Marvel, the new run of Ms. Marvel, um, having ended by G. Willow Wilson and now picked up by Saladin Ahmed. Um, I've got it. I haven't actually got a chance to read it because I'm trying to catch up on all the other Ms. Marvel stuff I've missed out on, particularly the last volume, which I haven't read any of yet. And I've also started reading uh, Marvel Champions, which is, you know, the younger um, the younger crowd, which mm. is um, Miles, Nova, uh, Ms. Marvel, etc. Um, but yeah, that came out. Uh, and then I don't have anything for the 20th, but then for the 27th, I have the Avant-Garde's number three and Glow number one, which is based on that Netflix show about wrestling that you said you liked. Um, yes, so yes. I'd be keen to see what that's like. Yeah, so um, for me... Uh... I've got quite a bit this time, actually. So for the 20th Mm. of March, um, the first one I wanted to bring up is a book called Invisible Kingdom, which um, it's uh, Berger Books. And uh, it's set in a small solar system in a far-flung galaxy. Invisible Kingdom tells the tale of two women, one a younger religious acolyte and the other a hard-bitten freighter pilot, who separately uncover an unholy conspiracy between the leader of the reunication the system dominance religion renunciate oh, the renunciation sorry i'm reading that wrong the system's dominant religion and looks the all-consuming mega corporation that controls society on the run from dangerous reprisals on both sides this unlikely pair of rebels risks plunging the world into total anarchy if they reveal the truth but when your beliefs betray you what choice is left uh written by g willow wilson and artist is Christian Ward. So there we go. Uh, that one I picked up purely for you, Ray, because it's got G Willow Wilson on it. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that she was doing this, but having just mentioned that she's ended them as Marvel stuff, and she's I, I think she started on Wonder Woman as well. Um, I need to catch up on her other works. So yeah, I'll keep an eye out for that one. Uh, the next one on my list is Spider Man Life Story Number One. So. In 1962, the world watched as teenager Peter Parker was bitten by a radioactive spider, allowing him to become the Amazing Spider-Man. It's been 57 57 years since Amazing Fantasy 15, the story that brought everyone's favourite wall crawler into the Marvel Universe and jump-started some of the most adventurous superhero stories ever. But what if Spider-Man had aged at the same rate as our world? When Flash Thompson (laughs) is drafted to serve during the Vietnam War, Spidey must weigh the question of where his responsibility truly lies. So I believe this is um, <clears throat> a Spider-Man like Spider-Man like so Spider-Man life story. I believe is going to be Spider-Man's life story, as if Spider-Man had been you know active in the sixties and going up to today, basically. Um, kind of a, a unique take on Spider-Man there that I'm quite interested in and and quite quite interested to read. So that's something that I'm I'm looking forward to. I don't know about you two. How does that sound yeah. to you, Ray? Yeah. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Leon? Because I know you're a big Spider-Man stan. Spider-Stan. <laughs> uh, I'll see what you guys say. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of just got roped into this, but yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Okay. Um, on from there, we've got a Firefly comic, Firefly Bad Company number one, which I know very little about Firefly, but this is purely to appeal to you two again, because I know you two watch <laughs> Firefly. So um, this is a 40-page celebration that takes a look into the never-before-seen story of one of the most beloved Firefly characters in the verse, Saffron. Oh, so it's a solo kind of comic about Saffron, and it's a journey through the early days of Saffron's life, from before her fateful meeting and marriage to Mal. Um, and it's an origin story no Firefly fan is sure to forget. I didn't oh. care about this at all, so wrong. I didn't care about this at all until you said Saffron. And yeah. Now I might read it. <laughs> yeah, there we <laughs> go. Go Saffridge. So, <laughs> what I'll do first is I'll tell you who's on this Spider-Man book. Um, so Chip Zdarsky <clears throat> is a writer and cover artist. Um, and uh, Mark Bagley is the main artist. And then we've got like variants by people like Scotty Young, Greg Smallwood, Marcos Martin and Tyler Kirkham. Uh, on the... Firefly book, it is Josh Lee Gordon as writer, Diego Galino is the cover artist, Francesco Moria Mortarino is the artist, and uh, Jamal Campbell is the variant cover artist. Um, and then the last one for the 20th is a book called Dismantlers, which um, was something that kind of sounded cool when I read the premise for it. Now this is on Black Mask. Um, I should mention that the Firefly comic is uh, Boom Studios. So Dismantle is Black Mask. And in a galaxy where terraforming is the most common form of real estate development, a highly skilled team of dismantlers travels to failed sites and salvages what's left of them. But that's not the hardest part of their job because relationships with each other can be even more complicated than terraforming entire planets. This is not a story of a prestigious federation or a powerful empire, but of the menial labourers who make it all possible. The unglamorous characters who work behind the scenes of galactic expansion. This is a story of their pillow talk, their break room banter, and their totally unforeseen fist fights with the pirates who jack their job sites out from under them. And this is from writer Ashley Woods and um, Aria Bachi and, uh, is the writer there and... Um, yeah, it just looks kind of cool. Sounds kind of cool, premise. This whole kind of like... Um, sci-fi through the eyes of... Working class people. Instead of through the eyes of soldiers. Or mega corporations. Which kind of caught my interest. Um, you know, just like every everyday average Joes in a sci-fi world kind of thing. Which sounds kind of cool. Um, for the 27th... Um, We've got the, the big one, which uh, is something that I've been talking about on here for a couple of weeks. Um, mentioned it in previous episodes. This is Detective Comics 1000, which is out on the 27th, and I am really stoked about that. Really stoked to pick this up. There's some really nice variants for it. Um, there's a couple that I've got my name down for at my LCS. Um, some particularly nice ones... Uh, the one of the ones is by um, Bruce Tim. It's the Bruce Tim one that I I I am particularly fond of. But yeah, there's a whole a whole host of variant covers for this book. Um, each one is kind of like a a different era of Batman comics, or a different era of Batman, and they all look rather nice. But yeah, uh, I am I am down for this landmark issue. And, yeah, we've got an all-star team on there as well of people that have worked on Batman over the years. There's so many people, I'm not going to read them all out. I'm going to leave this till I review it, but it's just it just looks so great. And it's just, 
celebration of everything that is Batman and everything that is, you know, the reason I love superheroes. So, yeah. Batman, Detective Comics, a thousand. Uh, Ice Cream Man number 11 um, is out on the 27th. And that has a rather interesting... premise as well because I want to read the blurb for this because this one so Ice Cream Man 11 which is Hopscotch Melange Part 3 this is the true story of one guy picked to live in a house and have his life taped to find out what happens when life stops being polite and starts getting real so it's kind of like trapped in reality TV which is something that, you know, I mean, like, as a, a being the person I am and being, you know, I, I don't like reality TV. And this is something that I, you know, it, it vibes with me. Definitely. And you've recently caught up on Ice Cream Man, haven't you, Ray? I have, yeah. It's so good. Like, I, I know I, sh- I, I, I wasn't not listening to you. I just didn't have the time to do it. But I finally had the, the like, the time and space to sit down and blast through one all the way through to 10 in one go and damn it's good like it really what's the tv tropes term like it grows its beard it goes from it goes from one thing into another it goes from like this the vignettes per issue to becoming like an overarching story and i yeah i really like where it's gone it's very cool I'm looking forward to 11 yeah no it, it is great i love what it's doing and i'm i'm really into it like mm. in a big way uh next thing on my list um Guess who is getting her own comic? Again. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. <laughs> but this is this is the uh the light hearted Archie Comics Sabrina. Not the uh Archie Horror Sabrina. So this is a brand new series. This is Sabrina uh the Teenage Witch number one. And uh Yeah, Sabrina is a teen witch who's struggling with balancing the double life of high school and her burgeoning powers. Newly relocated to Greendale with her aunts Hilda and Zelda, also witches, Sabrina is trying to make the best of being a new girl in town, which so far includes two intriguing love interests, an instant rivalry, a couple of misfits that could turn into BFFs, and trying to save the high school and maybe the world from crazy supernatural events. And this is written by Kelly Thompson. Uh, Veronica Fish is the artist cover artist. Uh, Andy Fish colorist. Um, Jack Morelli is letterer. And we've got a host of variant covers. But it just it's like this is the sort of like the pure Archie Comics Sabrina. So rather than being Archie Horror, this is the Sabrina that will fit into the larger Archie Comics equation. The Sabrina that we may have seen, um, you know when you, if you've read any of the recent Archie Jughead comics, she pops up in there, it's that kind, I think it's got that kind of thing going on for it, which is kind of cool. So I'm looking forward to this. I'm so looking forward to that. This is another Archie thing for me to read as a as a as a Riverdale stan and an Archie stan that I am. So yeah. Um, on from there, we've got Glow, which Ray already mentioned, uh, which is based on the uh, the show on Netflix. So yeah, um, it's published by IDW, and yeah, it just I mean I like the show. I might like the comic as well. I'll pick it up and check it out. Um. <clears throat> We also have something called Bad Luck Chuck on my list that I just spotted, which I just kind of just like this just had like an interesting premise. So 
Bad luck, Chuck. Uh, cursed at birth, Charlene Chuck Manchester hires out her own bad luck, providing disaster where someone else can profit. She can get you that insurance payout fortune for a price, but bad luck doesn't always go as planned. And when Chuck gets stuck between a dissatisfied crime boss client, a cult leader, and a dogged insurance fraud investigator, things get explosive. Um, so that just sounded interesting on premise alone. That's like something new. Like, okay, so she hires out her bad luck to people. That's cool. Um, and then 30 Days of Night is making a return, which is something that I picked up on as well. Being a, a fan of the 30 Days of Night movie and liking the comics. Um, so 30 Days of Night, 100 page, 100 page giant, uh, which is on March 27th. So out of print for over a decade, the superstar creative team of Kelly Sue DeConnick of Bitch Planet and Steve Niles, Kickass. And Justin Randall, Changing Ways, tackles the classic 30 Days Vampires. Stella managed to bring her husband Eben back from the beyond, but he came back hungry. Direct market. Yeah. So it's a 100 page issue, um, kind of like a re or a, a, an additional story for 30 Days a Night, um, which is kind of cool because the 30 Days a Night movie was cool. It's one of my favorite horror movies. And I really like the comic as well. And that brings us to the end of the pull list. So I guess we should close out the episode. So that has been Ace Comicals number 58. You can find us at www.acecomicals.com, which is kind of the hub for everything. Uh, we are on Instagram under Ace Comicals. We are on Twitter at Ace Comicals. We are on Facebook under Ace Comicals. Um, you can get in touch with us through DMs on Twitter. You can send us messages on Facebook. You can send us an email to acecomicals at gmail.com. You can find us to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, uh, Overcast, Pocketcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Castro. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bato. That's B-A-T-T-O-U. Ray, where can we find you? Uh, also on Twitter at Monke, M-O-O-N-K-E-H. And Leon, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter also at Leon Everett. That has been Ace Comicals episode number 58. So that is Ace Comicals over and out.